Hello, uh, this is me, Dominic Frisby, and it's been a while uh, since I did a podcast. This podcast has had various names over the years. It was uh, it began life as Commodity Watch Radio back in 2005, or was it early 2006? And then it became Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. And then it went by the name of Stuff That Interests Me. And I, it would does still technically go by the name Stuff That Interests Me, although I've been reliably informed by my other half that that is a self-indulgent title, so I might change it soon. Now, I had an email from a listener, and he listens to a lot of podcasts, and he had this idea that he wants to interview me, and he wants to do a bit more of an in-depth interview than you typically hear on the normal sort of podcast circuit. And so I agreed that I have no idea uh, what's going to happen, but I am going to hand you over to James, who is speaking from lovely Cornwall, the soon-to-be in Independent Republic of Kerno, and uh, it is, of course, the best place, uh, not just in the country, but in the whole world. So, James, lucky you for being Cornish and being in Cornwall, and um, over to you. Thank you, Dominic. Nice to be here. I wanted to speak to you specifically because you occupy such an unusual position with one foot in Money Week world, which represents a quite a mainstream view you know with a sort of quite a free market approach and then you also are very interested in crypto world which is more of a sort of hardcore libertarian space first off i wanted to ask how do you reconcile these two increasingly contradictory worlds the world of money week with writing about trends and a bit of charts and quite a lot about commodities and the world of bitcoin which is much more concerned with at its core, I suppose, a criticism of governments and corruption? Well, um, I, I can answer that question quite easily. Firstly, Money Week doesn't see itself as <laughs> conventional and institutional. It sees itself as quite independent and free-thinking. And it's Money Week tries to be apolitical. It's all about investments, but it does probably lean slightly to the right. And it, it came out, for example, quite strongly in favour of Brexit. And the crypto world, the libertarian world of crypto is far more extreme than Money Week is. You know, I was writing about cryptocurrencies in Money Week. My first article for them was on crypto it was 2013. So it's pretty early on to it. Money Week was got very popular in the noughties because it was very pro-gold. And that was a strong narrative in that decade. And probably looking back at this decade, if it had jumped, jumped onto the crypto um, space a bit more aggressively, then you know, that would have been a big theme for it. But then that was sort of really my job <laughs> as, as the crypto person. But anyway, the way that I reconcile that is is, is John Steppeck, the editor of Money Week, once said to me that the problem with ranting is that when you rant, you confirm the biases of those who already agree with you, but you tend to alienate the undecided. And so that always stuck with me. And so I've always, every, in everything I've written, whether it's for Money Week or elsewhere, tried to take a fairly measured, sensible approach to things in order not to alienate the middle. Now, looking back at my life, perhaps that was a mistake because the media likes strong opinion. It likes heroes and it likes villains, whether it's Owen Jones 
or Nigel Farage, whoever it is, people who have strong opinions and take no prisoners and go in all guns blazing. I don't have nearly as many enemies as Owen Jones or Nigel Farage, but I don't have nearly as many fans either. And so perhaps that more measured approach in terms of turning you into a media star or whatever has been something of a mistake. But in any case, when I'm writing for Money Week, you know, you've got to be aware of the audience that you're writing for. And when I'm writing for Money Week, and I, I pretty much wrote my book on cryptocurrency with the same hat on that I write for Money Week. You know, I try to be measured. I try to be sensible. I try not to rant too much. I try to stay away from politics. I try to, you know, make sensible arguments based on, you know, reasonable thought about why you should invest in this and why you shouldn't touch that and why this is a good thing and why that's a bad thing and so on. So I do try to be measured. I think I sort of hope that answers your question, but I don't think the worlds of crypto and money week are that different. And I will say this, even though I wrote that book on Bitcoin in 2014 and it was the first book on Bitcoin from a recognised publisher. I'm still quite moderate in libertarian terms. And if I were when I go to cryptocurrency conferences, which isn't very often, I only ever go to one or two a year. I always feel by the time I leave, I become much more extreme than I was at the beginning of the whole thing. I love them. They're, they're, they're real you know, they, people do not give a toss at those conferences. They say really hardcore anti-government stuff, and it's great to listen to. And it's not what you normally hear in the, in the normal media world in which we immerse ourselves. So to push that a tiny bit further, um, I, I'm a big fan of Money Week as well. And for exactly the same reasons as you say, it's a moderate, particularly like... Uh, John and Marin's podcast and it does temper the more alarming and perhaps appealing areas of libertarianism <laughs> but at the moment and I, I wanted to get on this a bit later because it's sort of the, the most topical thing at the minute but at the moment there is more of a divergence so previously crypto world and money week seemed to have a bridge between them which was about value and uh, I think it's called a monetarist point of view, is it? You know, about hard, tangible value. And uh, they seem to share that. That seems very much... The sound the, money argument thing. Yeah, yeah, the sound money. And I can I see that a lot in money. Oh, sorry. My dog's just barking in the background. It's fine. We like dogs. Um, it seems uh, at the moment that there is a, it is diverging further because crypto world or wider libertarian world at the minute, well, in Money Week, say last week's uh, Money Week, the 20th anniversary edition, I was reading the intro and it's incredibly positive. It's saying in the next 20 years, we'll all be popping off to Tokyo for lunch. And there were lots of things about biotech and various different interesting positive stories whereas a quick glance over anything uh, and it's interesting your friend James Stellingpole has slightly headed in this direction lately into crypto world or more libertarian point of view it's much more bleak at the moment it's much more that the corporate totalitarians are at the door and we'll all be locked up forever type thing and with those two where do you sit at the minute on those on that particular division because it was quite different last week. Normally I can see they're talking about the same things. Like you say, John Steffek's just slightly more moderate. Well, John's very moderate and, you know, sensible. And he's a, you know, he's a great person to have in a, in a company because he uh, is just so dependable and not confrontational, but just sort of gently nudges you in the right direction. And, and 
you know, he's he's very good at, at being bossy when he needs to and delegating when he needs to, you know. And Merrin is just a total genius and, and uh, you know, I pretty much agree with everything Merrin says. It's very interesting. I, I wrote a chapter in my book, Daylight Robbery, and I ended up taking it out of the book for reasons of brevity, but I wish I'd left it in now, about how tech is in the future is taking or even now is taking over government services and will replace government services and this was a trend that i saw quite a few years ahead but with covid it's just happened so rapidly you know the rise of tech in our lives whether it's zoom or or nhs track and trace or like i look at my life and there's definitely this unholy alliance going on between big tech and government um, while big tech started out originally as a great f- source of freedom, you know, freedom of information and, and all the rest of it, with what's going on in tech at the moment, you know, it's clear that Facebook and Twitter were very much on the side of the Democrats in the US election and very much acted to, you know, censor a lot of what Donald Trump said. And they would say, no, they were only being truthful and stopping fake news being spread. But they were much more... Um, you know, everyone knows that in elections, lies get told on both sides. And they were much more vigilant about policing the Trump side of the things than they were the Democrat side. And, you know, I, I watched a very good film the other day. The Social Dilemma. The Social yeah. Dilemma. Thank you very Which much. It was sneakily politicised as well, did you notice? <laughs> yeah, and exactly. And it was such, it was a really good film and it made a lot of good points. But all of the solutions were we need government regulation to, to and it was all protectionist and government regulation and it was all that left of centre mentality that's taken over that technocratic thing that seems to have taken over Silicon Valley that started out initially as so so libertarian and even someone libertarian like Peter Thiel you, you know he's behind PayPal and PayPal has made him his fortune and he's obviously a genius, but boy, does PayPal play by the rules. And it's a greater policer of money laundering than government ever is. And, and it, it knows that it has to do that in order to survive. It has to play by government rules in order to get in order to occupy the space that it did and then to survive. And Facebook and Twitter and all these organisations seem to be doing the same thing in order to that they don't get clamped down on. They are regulating themselves and you know, very much adhering to government regulations. Now, in many cases, you know, if you look at the market cap of Facebook and um, Google and Apple and Amazon, it's they're richer than many countries around the world. They're more powerful than nation states. You know, they're still not entirely honest about how they pay their taxes. Uh, when I say honest, they are, you know, a lot of these tech companies deliberately don't declare profits because profits are taxable so they'll find ways of reinvesting them or they're clever with their ip or their um trademarks or whatever and they operate in different countries and all the stuff that we all know goes on and which i don't have that great an objection to because we live in a globalized world and if they're exploiting globalized different laws in different countries then fair enough and in my view is that the country countries who feel they're being cheated out of tax revenue need to change the way they tax people but that's a that's a different argument but anyway so coming back to the initial point there's this alliance between big tech and government and it's a sort of you know if you think of the fascism of the 1930s 
it was similar, particularly in Italy, there was this alliance between corporation and, and government. And it, it's not dissimilar to that. My f- I am owned between Google, Amazon and Facebook. Uh, not so much Facebook. Between Google, Amazon and Apple, I am owned. I have an iPhone. I have it with me almost all of the time. It, I've, when I don't have it with me, I've got one of these Garmin watches that, that you know I use for exercise. And this Garmin watch is constantly translating data, even about how I sleep. It's translating this data to Apple. And 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 my my iPhone just knows everything about me. Google Google knows like I can draft an email to somebody that I hate or just to anyone, and I can draft the email and then I'll go. Do you know what? I'm not going to send that. So I've thought it, but I haven't uttered it. And but Google knows. Gmail knows from my draft emails the stuff that I've thought but haven't actually said allow because I never actually sent the email so it knows my darkest thoughts and Facebook is is similar I don't really use Facebook that much but for example there are all these weird connections so for example if you bought an American car you were more likely to vote for Donald Trump or if you buy fennel you're a low insurance risk there are all these connections that that clever data analytics have made and just because for example you know Google probably or maybe Facebook or somebody knows what I bought in the supermarket or Amazon knows what I my spending habits are and knows what I buy. And it probably knows as a result of what I buy, how I'm likely to vote, what age I'm likely to be, if I'm likely to be overweight, under just knows stuff about me. I, I think Amazon, just from the point of view of being a customer, is fantastic. It, it's horrible as a supplier, but as a customer, it's just wonderful. And I buy stuff on there almost every day. But with all the information and data it has about me and Google, Google, you know, all the various searches I've done over the years, um, you know, and I, I, I've searched some pretty unacceptable things, I would probably say, um, at some point. I, I once wrote a, um, a drama about an old lady who becomes a serial killer. So I was Googling ways to kill people <laughs> at one point a few years ago. So Google knows that I've been searching about you know, different means to kill people, different poisons and stuff. And so between the three of them, those companies, they have this incredible power over me. Now, when it starts coming in, you know, NHS track and trace and you can't go to this country if you with this person because this person's mixed with this person and they had COVID-19 and all this sort of control by, by, by medical control that, that's going on, you know, it's an extremely dark place that we're going to. It's an extremely dark place from the point of view of government control. It's, it's you know, pure Aldous Huxley and all those dystopian future things. But at the same time, as a result of having an Apple phone or any phone, I can communicate with anyone at anywhere in the world at zero cost. I can make a film that years ago would have required millions of dollars of equipment for a few hundred dollars. I, you know, as a result of cars, I can travel anywhere in the world or planes, but all that plane travel and car travel is heavily regulated. So at the same time as, as trapping us and tracing us and making us less free, it's also making us, enabling us and making things that weren't possible 
um, a decade or 20 or 50 or 100 years ago, you know, people in 1895 were much freer than they are today. They paid much low levels of tax. They didn't need to have a passport to go from one country to another. They could go through their lives, as AJP Taylor said in 1914, and barely notice the existence of the state, bar a post office and the local policeman. Now, we're in a very different world to that. It's not nearly as free. But at the same time, the possibilities that are open to us way, way exceed what was possible. Since we're actually more free because we're more powerful. Now, I see where James Dellingpole, why he's, why he's so concerned about what's going on. And the alternative is to go down the rabbit hole and only use Bitcoin and Monero and all the privacy currencies and get the new decentralised... Um, blockchain based phone app if it even exists um, and you know run your phone on that and 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 put a sellotape over the camera on your camera uh, uh, on your computer and do all these sort of privacy things and and you know only use a VPN so that the browser doesn't know what you can do all these things but ultimately it's just a headache and it's easier if Google knows that you're at home and it knows that you're home where it is, because that way it can send out better instructions for how to get from your home to wherever it is you want to go to. So, you know, in 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 many ways, we're empowered. And I think probably Money Week, you know, I think deep down Merrin's pretty libertarian and she's, you know, she's extremely bright, Merrin, and she's able to um, uh, deconstruct stupid arguments very easily and very quickly and and you know she she lives in scotland and she has to deal with the idiocies idiocies of the scottish national party and she, and she you know and even just edinburgh council and all the stupidities of the, the street planning there and you know and she's just um very uh sort of accepting of it and and just sort of thinks it's stupid, but sort of accepts that it's where we are and focuses on the positive. But, you know, I don't think she's even ever been to a crypto conference and I'm sure she'd love it. But, you know, I've tried, to, I sent Mary in her very first Bitcoins a few years ago and it was just a, a headache in the end, just explaining the technology to her. So there's this sort of trade off. And I think Marin's would sort of accept the trade-off of convenience for handing over a little bit of your freedom to the state because ultimately the world in which we live if you just accept that it is a sort of I don't even know what the word is a techno mediocrity but if you accept that it is incredibly empowering at the same time you mentioned governments and technology companies cozying up in a quite alarming way but the third party in that which is which are mentioned a lot in again in outside of mainstream circles is the role of corporations sort of beyond both of these things uh, how do you see you've written a lot about crony capitalism how this year particularly uh, for me the crony capitalist arguments have and narratives have sort of jumped the queue this year in likelihood <laughs> does that make sense oh um, well i don't know why you say likelihood that they've they're here they've always been here and the more government spends the more crony capitalism you get but but i don't necessarily mean in the ppe contracts allowable 
narratives. I mean more in the World Economic Forum Aldous Huxley sense, <laughs> uh, which again, you know, uh, James Dellingpole is is good good on him in a way because he's bringing this stuff out of fruity crypto world um, and into as are lots of people at the minute, you know, w w this year, particularly with the very alarming dystopian world we're in. How, how do you feel about crony capitalism at the moment? Well, I, I think it's a big concern. I think it's rampant. What concerns me most is that people who argue against capitalism a lot of the time don't understand what capitalism is. And actually, they're arguing against crony capitalism. Well, I'm on your side and 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 and. I just wish we called things by the right name. Um, you know, capitalist society where nobody's given any state aid at all is actually the fairest society of all. But try persuading a statist of that. And, you know, I intensely dislike that sort of technocratic world of, of government mandarins that, that's occupied by Klaus Schwab and Theresa May and, and Barack Obama and all yeah. this... Uh, you know, positive discrimination that's going on and wokeism and Hillary Clinton. It's all, they're all bedfellows and there is this sort of convergence of opportunists. Yeah, I like that saying, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I wonder about it being a deliberate conspiracy as much as a convergence of opportunists. And, and there's just, it's it's very hard to defend against. And I think a lot of people just don't want the fight they, they they might agree with the Dellingpole worldview, but they don't want the fight. They don't want to be told that they're racist. They don't want to lose their job because they liked something that James Dellingpole said. So they, they just um, get their heads down and get on with it. And w when it comes to vote, every now and then they get a chance to vote and they vote. But really, democracy in itself is an illusion. It's just a, a choice between, you know, two different parties who are trying to occupy the middle and they're fighting about three or four percent of GDP. And when the state, you know, provides employment to 35, 40 percent of the workforce, the state's going to get 35, 40 percent of the vote. A government that promises to pay Peter to, to rob Peter to pay Paul can pretty much depend on the vote of Paul, as, as George Bernard Shaw famously said. So um, I don't really know what to do about it, James. I, I, I look at it, yeah, I despair. It, ma it yeah. makes me sad. It makes me depressed. I, I invest in Bitcoin. I invest in gold. I put out narratives that are, oppose this. But at the same time, you know, I'm trying to get voiceover work. I'm pretty sure that, that, and I don't think I'm that extreme, for example, on Twitter. But when you look somebody up, one of the first things you look at is what they've said on Twitter, because you can tell straight away where they are on the political spectrum. And I bet you I've lost countless amounts of work because I have the wrong views. And so, yeah. you know, I probably would, you know, I'd love to, for example, present a documentary on the BBC, not because I particularly love the BBC, but just because it is the most fantastic platform and it is extremely well paid and you know, we've me and my friend have made this documentary, for example, about um, uh, Adam Smith, the philosopher Adam Smith and the history of the Edinburgh Festival. And it requires loads of archive Edinburgh Festival footage to make the documentary. And we can't afford the footage. Now, if we were <laughs> on the BBC, we'd get all the footage and it's the most fantastic story. But if we were to get on the BBC, I'd probably have to, you know, give the to gig to... to 
you know, one of the in-house BBC presenters or, you know, somebody that, that fits their diversity bill better than I do. And then as a result, I'd be losing what I see as my story and somebody and, you know, so it's, it's very frustrating. And I, I sort of towing the line somewhere in the middle and probably it just pays to just go, do you know what? Screw it and just be really extreme. But but, you know, on the end, I'm, I'm I, in the end, I, I'm still clinging on to the notion that I might one day. <laughs> get a chance <laughs> yeah to yeah. present a show on the bbc but probably unrealistically but anyway okay well um so with that this next bit goes quite well into that that uh that flows quite well into this next bit but slightly more optimistic so is the bit phone ringing off the hook um this week you've um yeah you yeah, you're asking me basically. I'm. I'm not. D- despite the fact that I've, I wrote the book about Bitcoin in 2014, um, it came out in that first crypto winter, and so it never got an international distribution. So it was only really ever known in the UK and outside of the UK. I'm not really that well known in the crypto world, and I was CEO of that company um, for a year or two, uh, Cypherpunk Holdings, and then I stood down earlier in the year because my dad passed away, and it was just I. I, I couldn't. I just had too much on. And um, but, I, you know, I've got a few Bitcoins. I never bought as many as I should, because when I first heard about Bitcoin, Bitcoin was only a, a dollar and it kept doubling. And um, and and I was like, I'm not buying it after it's doubled because I thought it would be like some silly junior mining company where it's always foolhardy to buy it after it doubles. I didn't fully realize the potential of the thing. And then it got to the same price. It was a, it, it kept doubling. and I never bought it. And then people kept giving me them. And then I had a few. And then um, then I got hacked and I lost them all. <laughs> and so it's just so I would be so rich if I hadn't been bloody hacked. But anyway, I have a, a friend who, um, funnily enough, lent me your book originally on bitcoin uh which was my first dalliance into oh you still there yeah yeah uh, he lent me a book which was my first dalliance into alt world i suppose and uh, it was your bitcoin book and he himself yeah had bought he had bought and then sold when it doubled or something and he, he worked out recently it might have you would have had four billion quid or something now you had that many oh my god i mean there are so many people if I had if I had a penny for every person that's come to me and said I knew about Bitcoin, I had a few and I sold after it doubled or I didn't get in or whatever. I mean, you know, there I, there are so few people that manage to hang on all the time, even like the Bitcoin guys like Roger Veer and so on. Like Roger got hacked and he had um, t- uh, thousands of coins stolen off him and then he bought back in. He had the wisdom to bought, buy back in. Then he sold out his bitcoins and rolled the money into Bitcoin Cash, you know, which is not done nearly as well. And there are so many, there are very few guys who manage to hold on the whole time. And it, it's just very, very hard. And there's, there's, I heard of one guy who's a real computer nerd. I heard this from a solicitor of mine who mined loads when you could still mine them. You didn't need a huge operation next to a nuclear plant in Iceland or something to mine them. And and he mined 120,000. And he recently agreed a deal, English guy, and apparently he doesn't care about money. I want to say 120,000. Is that right? And, and he recently agreed a deal with JP Morgan, of all people, who have been very anti-Bitcoin, 
Um, yeah. To sell them to 120,000 times 15,000, to sell them all to JP Morgan, that's right, for $15,000 each for a total price of $2 billion. So, and, you know, he had them, he was mining them in 2010, 2011, as a lot of computer nerds were. And just, yeah. you know, just because they were interested in the laptops, whole thing yeah. on their laptops. I know one guy, an Australian guy, who um, had an IT job uh, with a company and he just used to leave his computer on at night mining bitcoins. And then he'd come back in the, using the company's power. Uh, but he was doing it on the company laptop and he mined loads of bitcoins on the company laptop. And when he left the company, they threw his laptop. Uh, yeah. Is that the guy who was rifling through the rubbish? Oh, uh, but all right. <laughs> no, that's another guy. That's a guy in Wales, and he was clever enough to buy back in. But there are so many stories like that. They estimate fifteen to twenty percent of bitcoins have been lost, and it's probably not that far off the mark. I remember when when it went. I'm sort of a bit more mellow about it now. But when it went to twenty thousand dollars in 2016, I was having sleepless nights about, you know, how rich I I could and should have been. There's I've got this one project that I'm just desperate to do, uh, which is this musical that my father wrote called kisses on a postcard and in fact i am now doing it but not quite in the way that was originally intended and the intention was to do it as a stage musical in the west end and i needed five million dollars for that and if i'd played bitcoin as well as i probably should have done that five million sorry not five million dollars five million quid should just be immaterial as it is i'm now doing it as an audio project so i'm going to make it happen probably to a higher standard than it would be if i was in the west end and it's going to cost me tens of thousands rather than <laughs> millions so i am still realizing the dream my life's often like that i often have these big dreams and objectives and they always seem to um come about but not quite in the way that i originally imagined um, it is a fascinating discussion when you do hear everyone's because i suppose psychology it's very hard not to sell it when it's roaring and also um when it dives <laughs> but you know it's a classic example isn't it of people being shaken out yeah you um, need to when to be really successful in an investment you need to one find a good investment and two you need to brainwash yourself about this investment and you watch really good fund managers talk they always talk about they really talk with passion about the companies they've invested in and they, they're really excited about the prospects for whatever the company is whether it's a you know a technology company or a, a biomedical company or a mine or whatever it is you know or even just a shop you know they really believe so one you've got to find a good investment and two, you've got to totally brainwash yourself about it. The reason you've got to brainwash yourself about it is so that you don't sell. Where it, you know, if it doubles, you cannot sell. You've got to hold because that you know, um, you know what's his name, uh, Livermore would always say the big money's made in the holding. And if you brainwash yourself about something, then you hold it. And so you know, you see it with gold or crypto. In, uh, crypto or you know imagine if you brainwash yourself about the potential of amazon in 1997 or or apple you know steve jobs is the greatest computer inventor there ever was he's going to invent this amazing phone he's got plans for this and you just brainwash yourself that's how you convince yourself to hold on to something or you have a simple trend following system that uses for example moving averages and you just say as long as it's above 
the long-term moving average or whatever moving average you care to use, then I'm staying long. And that stops you selling too early. Yeah, you've written about that a few times in Money Week recently. Um, your your own system, is that right? Yeah, I, I use it. Um, I, I probably make out in Money Week that I use it more than I actually do use it because I'm afraid <laughs> I'm terrible for making snap judgments. Oh, me too. I bought a yeah. load no, of that, platinum the other day. Hear, I'm so actually. bullish about platinum. So bullish. Yeah. And I bought a load last week and then it pulled back a bit. And I, I just moved my stop a little bit above what I paid for it because I didn't want to get stopped out. And it moved back, touched my stop, and now it's gone up 20% in the last week. And I'm like, oh, fuck. I was right about that, and I still managed not to make any money out of it. You know, I'm afraid we all make mistakes. Even the best traders in the world make mistakes. So this week I've been, I've heard twice this week, um, something which I'd never heard before, an accusation leveled at Bitcoin, that it may not be the organic libertarian thing and it's more a soft launch from um it was one was in a book i was reading about technocracy and then another one uh i can't remember who it was but it was and someone commented that there was always a bitcoin cash point or you know a bitcoin uh vendor next to the uh, bank of international settlements in uh, switzerland and it was a really bleak view because i've always had quite a lot of faith in bitcoin and it was the first time uh, what do you think about that? Have you heard that? No, I haven't heard it, and it sounds like bullshit. Okay, good. I do know that in an early conference, like Roger Veer and Charlie Schrem and um, the other guy whose name I've forgotten, who lives in New York, um, they deliberately put their stall in a market next to Swift. Right. <laughs> was it Swift or someone like that in some financial conference? But that was just to 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 make a point. Yeah. But but that's yeah. that's slightly different what I'm describing. Okay, good. Well, that's good to hear from someone uh, more familiar with it because it was yeah, it was a bit of a shock thinking cause it was it was a bit, it was a very well thought out book and it, he this guy was maintaining that Bitcoin was the soft launch for central bank digital currencies, which which was ah uh, uh, well that's that I don't um what you tend to see and you see this throughout history is that the private sector does something very well and then the state copies it. Yes. For example. You know, the friendly societies of the 19th century became the NHS of the 20th century. Um, and the friendly societies at the level they were offered probably worked much better than the NHS did or certainly does now. Bitcoin has proved the model and we are definitely going into central bank digital currencies. But the real loser out of central bank digital currencies, and they really are evil, you know, because yeah. you'll have your account with the central bank. They'll be able to monitor every single transaction. They can impose negative real rates on you. And they actually circumvent with central bank digital currencies. Your universal basic income or whatever can be deposited straight into your account. The government controls money. And already it's taken much greater control of money before. And it, But it's banks who are the big losers with that. Ordinary, yeah. you know, HSBC and so on. Um, the... And central banks are the big winners. For example, I got one of those bounce back loans, free loan that you could have. And so I took a bounce back loan. But I was recently listening to the um, Russell Napier talking and he made the point that those bounce back loans, under ordinary circumstances, a bank would not have lent that money. 
because the risk was too high. And it's only because those bounce back loans are guaranteed by the government. Now, they estimate that 50 percent of those bounce back loans are going to go bad. And effectively, that is just money that's been created by government. Previously, money was created by banks when they lent it. And that's still happened. That money's been, the bounce back loan money has been created and lent to businesses who've then gone and spent it. That, that money is backed by government, so there will be no loss on that money. So it's inherently inflationary. So government suddenly over the last 10, 15 years, there's been a shift in the way that money is created. And much more of it is created by government. And as a result, government has more control. There is more state control of money. And that is something that, that uh, is very concerning. It really is. <laughs> but then at the same time, you know, fintech and everything else means there will be greater possibilities as a result of it. So it, that, that essential dilemma is still there. So it's a question of trust, really. You have to either, like you say, set yourself against it and really try to opt out in every way possible or... But it's just, really difficult to do that. Oh, it's impossible. Yeah, absolutely. I lived on a boat for a bit. Um, in Canary Wharf and I loved living on the boat and you really felt you know I didn't have to pay council tax because I was living on the boat and I was like yeah yeah no council tax screw you but it was just a pain in the arse it was a pain in the arse not having an address and getting stuff delivered and I'd have to get stuff delivered to to a, a, a PO box and then I'd have to go and collect it and there was always an issue when an Amazon delivery driver came you know what I mean there was just always problems and it was just easier to be in the system than not to be in it tempting and romantic though the idea of living outside of the system is yes so finally really quickly i've read something yesterday we're going to be charged for it was that we're going to be charged for driving per mile with a sort of surveillance-led black box in your car and the argument was that the government needs to claw back five billion quid or something in fuel duty and and it seems so ridiculous when they're just creating these gigantic amounts of money that they would really. So is tax in MMT and central bank digital currency world, is tax just going to be a sort of political weapon, do you think? It already is a political weapon and it, and it always has been and always will be. The, and it's a tool for control. And tax is power. If, you know, a government or a king or an emperor, whatever it is, they lose their tax revenue, they lose their power. And they've just got to hope, hope that their money keeps its value because otherwise they lose their tax revenue and they lose their power. I mean, for sure, there's a massive tax deficit coming. It's already there. Governments will go to where taxes are easy to collect. And the motorist has proved an easy means to collect it. Now, previously, road tax was collected either by motorist tax, was either collected by road tax or fuel duties. But they're desperately pushing to a hydrogen car economy uh, with without diesel and petrol and they've you know done all sorts of green incentives to people who don't use fossil fuels and that's going to create a tax gap and I do think we're going into a world where I mean we're still probably five or ten years away from it where we no longer own our own car like you know the stat that you know we all have a car but the car 95 percent of the time sits on the street outside your house and doesn't get used and that's considered wasteful well, in fact, that you could say the same thing applies to your washing machine or your um, toaster or your hairdryer, whatever it is. You know, we don't use it 95 percent of the time. But 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 when you have, you know, self-driving vehicles, self-driving Ubers driving around all the place, um, you won't need to own your own car. You just call the self-driving Uber that's nearest to you and get in that and it whizzes you off to wherever it is you want to go. Um, and I do think that's going to be a reality I don't know, 
five, ten years from now, maybe a bit more. And, you know, how is the government going to tax that? There'll be a little bot in the car and, and every for every mile you travel... And I guess different miles will be ranked differently. Miles in city centres you'll pay more for than miles in um, in the countryside. You pay a you pay a certain fee, and it's just docked from your central bank digital currency with which you have the account with Uber. You know. Also, the other thing I've noticed is that when the lockdown came, you you might not have seen this so much in Cornwall, but when in the lockdown came and COVID came. Everyone stopped using public transport. For a start, there are fewer people in central London. There are many more people in zones two, three and four where all the residential areas are and because everyone's working from home and they're not travelling in. But also, more are using their cars uh, than are using public transport, partly for safety, partly for convenience. And so the traffic in zones from zones two outwards has been terrible, even though central London's been dead. So the congestion charge zone has been dead, so there's congestion charge zone income has fallen but outside of the congestion charge zone um, driver numbers are up and so you're going to see some kind of penalty for this you, you know this uh, uh, they'll either they'll extend extend the the congestion charge zone or they'll tax you per mile or something they'll find some way of taxing it and i do think the easiest way is is you know some little bot in your car that measures the amount of miles you do and you pay a fee based on that um, or higher fuel duties, but but they're they're trying to ease. I didn't know today. I think they made diesel cars illegal by twenty thirty or something. <laughs> yeah, they did. I think yeah. We did you know, I, I'm I'm I really like Alfa Romeos, and I could year in the markets, and I wanted to buy myself a new Alfa Romeo, and um, but I'm just looking, at, uh, and I would buy a diesel because I I drive down to Cornwall a lot, and I just I prefer diesels on the motorway. I like the torque you get, and um. But I'm just looking at that game. What's the point if if that car's, you know, I mean, I'm just buying I mean, Alfa Romeos depreciate at an alarming rate as it is. Let alone the fact that it's going to be illegal by in nine years' time. So, um, yeah, it's a fascinating picture at the minute. How I don't know. I don't necessarily accept the acceleration of trends. I think it's so much. It seems so fast and so organized at the minute that I, well, I have sort of slightly retreated into after my brief dalliance with Bitcoin in 2017 when you are exposed to lots of those narratives I then once it crashed forgot all about them and started reading Money Week <laughs> and um but this year yeah I've I'm starting to have an uneasy feeling of a rather more organised movement or ideology or whatever it is, whether it's technocracy or something, rather than the acceleration of trends, the sort of organic argument. Um, but I hope you're, you know, I hope I'm wrong. The sort of organic well, argument. you know, they're all probably on WhatsApp groups. They're all people like going, you know, we really want this. You know, everyone, so many different groups have jumped on the bandwagon and exploited it for their own lens, whether it's Black Lives Matter or, or you know, the green movement everyone's jumped on the what's it called extinction rebellion or or um remain or leave or or the 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 media every little interest group has jumped in it on their own way and they're all you know people talk to each other and they coordinate and they probably think you know how can we make this happen and there's but there's definitely been the opportunists have taken taken hold well well i i better go and put the kids to bed um i know the feeling but thank you um thank you very very much you talk 
extremely well and it's fascinating to hear you talk on these things. Time does get eaten up 